as I did last week, I want to kind of remind us of the season that we're in and, and some overall things that are really important for our church that we need to be aware of. Um, we are kind of in the midway point of the fast that we've been walking through since last week. And uh, it's important for us as a church family, as we walk through this, to really fully give our attention to what God may be saying to us as individuals, especially. Uh, I know I've talked to a number of people who either they're doing like a complete fast from food or they're fasting a meal a day or they're fasting electronics or whatever they would do. But the point of a fast is not necessarily what you're giving up. It's what you're replacing it with. It's giving up something so that you can focus your attention on what God is saying in times of prayer and really connecting with the Lord. And so uh, some of you might think, hey, fasting, that's not my kind of thing. But just so you know, it's never too late to jump on board a fast, okay, even if it's the last day, to give God our attention. And it's important as we walk through this season because this fast and walking through this in this season of really saying, God, what is it that you want us to turn the page on or repent from our life as we move forward? It's very pivotal for our future. What, what God is going to do in the future in our lives and in our church, the foundation for that is being laid right now in our lives. It's really important for that. And understand that the way that, that the rhythm of following Jesus works, when you and I begin to try to seek to follow Jesus more in our life, there's somebody who doesn't want that to happen. Uh, Jesus said, you know, when he was in that encounter with Peter and he said that we talked about the church, that the gates of hell, that Jesus, that Jesus is building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You all, we've heard that before, some familiar phrase, but you know, one of the things that the gates of hell will do, can't, they can't stop God's momentum. They can't thwart his people, but they can distract us. They can keep us sidetracked. The enemy can get us uh, sidetracked in little rubs with each other or other things that go on in our life that kind of pull our attention away from God. And the enemy will do that when you go through a season of fasting because he knows that you're wanting to focus on Jesus so he creates a distraction. So as we walk through this, this next week or so, as we complete the fast, be aware of those things that cause distraction in your life. And it's not that there's a demon behind every bush, but there is an enemy who will try to distract us from what God is saying to us. It's extremely important for us to embrace that. And the second thing I wanted to mention is in your bulletin this morning, uh, if you looked at it, you've probably seen this little card. It says, Right Size Pledge on it. And I wanted just for a moment to talk about this. Um, as you, I mentioned before, on the 18th, when we come together a week from Tuesday to culminate the fast and have a time of worship and communion together, we're also going to take some time to talk about the building that we're in the process of purchasing. If you were here the last couple of weeks, I talked about the fact that we've actually come to an agreement on a purchase contract with the owner, and now we're just fine-tuning that, and now we're going to move forward and actually buying our own building as we move out of this building, So, which is really exciting. And as I said, like last week, I said this, we are at like step five of 100, so we can be excited, but we've got a long way to go. Now, part of that is, is the beauty of the, this transition. We'll talk more about it on the 18th when we come and gather. I'll, I'll lay out specifically what's happening. But uh, once we get into the building and get through the purchase process, it's going to save us probably sixteen dollars to $17,000 a month in our, on what we put into building stuff. It's just crazy. That's the good news. The hurdle that you and I have to face is something that only God can overcome. And that is to, for this to happen, we've been working on the numbers and the details of what that's going to look like in terms of what amount of money we need up front with the permits and the construction and the down payment and all the things that go into that. And it, it, with, with the money that we have on hand and the money that we can, we can access, we still need an additional $600,000 in the next six months. And you think, oh, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, that's a mountain that God can only move. And we just sang a song about God is able. And I believe that in this season of time, God is not testing us to trip us up, but he's testing us to say, are you really going to trust me? 
Are you really going to believe that I am at work in your lives and I am moving you forward? And so with this little card, what I'd like you to do, as I mentioned this a few weeks ago, is that, that we need to make a financial commitment over and above our regular tithe, because I explained that before. When, when we come into a season where we're, where we're receiving funds for an additional either mission trip or a building, it's not just taking your tithe and reallocating it for a building. Because if you do that, we may able, be able to get in the building, but we won't have a staff or electricity or anything else that goes with that. And so it's, it's a sacrificial gift over and above what we already normally give. And so I encourage you, over the next few weeks, and really we come to the 18th, you can bring it then, but by the end of this month, I want to see everyone who calls New Hope their home turn in one of these cards and make a commitment of what you're going to give over the next six months, starting in March all the way through August. It may be a monthly gift you can do. It may be a one-time gift, thinking through. I know a lot of people have already started to do this. They're rearranging their finances and what they're going to do as far as spending money in the future so that we can, over the next six months, we can see God, through our generosity, raise that $600,000 so we can be God can do that. I believe, I'm convinced of it. If we've seen the turnaround we've seen in our finances in the last year, God can do what he's going to do if we're faithful to be obedient to him. Amen? I played that because it... it it really captures what Jesus is talking about in the passage we're going to look at today, talking about our commitments or the oaths or the things that we say that we're going to do in life. And the understanding for you and I is that the commitments that we make, the decisions that we make, what Jesus will talk about, we'll read in the passage in a moment, is yes or no. He's saying there's no middle ground. And in that, in that image that, that you're either on one side of the road or the other, but if you find yourself in the middle, that's the worst place possible to be. And the challenge for us many times in life is that because of different circumstances or factors that play into the decisions and commitments that we make, many times we find ourselves being in the middle of the road because we really haven't been definitive and we haven't stuck out with our commitments or decisions. And therefore, we're in a place that, as Mr. Miyagi says, that's the place you don't want to be because that's the place that you get run over. That's when life falls apart because you're neither yes nor no. You're in the middle and the middle is the worst place to be. And I want us to take some time as, as we walk through this together this morning. I, I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, when, 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 we, when I walk through passages and we're going through this, the timing of the, the messages that come are not orchestrated by me. I know they're orchestrated by God. That's why I like to open the scriptures and see what's there and just follow what's there. Because the timing, God always seems to line up with what's going on in our church. And as we move forward, especially as we come through the season of the fast, our commitment where we're at, not only as a church to what God's doing through the church and finances and all those things, but our commitment to follow Jesus is going to be extremely important to come to realize, am I in or am I out? It's, there's no halfway. And that's really the core of what Jesus is talking about, which we'll talk a little bit more about later. But let me read this passage and we'll talk about our commitments and what Jesus underscores in this passage today. So starting in verse 33, Jesus speaking, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So Jesus, remember last week, if you were here, we endured that painful experience talking about divorce. Jesus talked about our commitment in marriage, and now he's underscoring once again, not only our commitment in marriage, but our commitments that we make in life. 
And so to give you the historical context, what Jesus, when, when he was saying some key phrases there about swearing about from, by heaven or swearing by earth or swearing by Jerusalem, those were all things that people would use to make commitments. And much like what the Jews had done throughout their history is that they take a portion of the law and then they begin to build a, a mechanism or a system that gives them loopholes in the ability so that they can change things. So, for example, it got to the most ridiculous thing. So when somebody would make an oath, and Jesus references talking about Jerusalem, there were certain oaths or certain commitments, certain things you could swear by, that when you did it a certain way, people knew that you had left a loophole for yourself to get out of it. And then there was other ways when you use certain terminology or certain words that you knew it was binding. It was like, I triple dog dare you kind of level. You know, it was like, totally for sure this is it. And so literally, this is kind of the, the nuances. So if somebody were to say, I swear by Jerusalem, by using the word by, it gave them an out clause. But if they said the same phrase, but they changed the word by to I swear toward Jerusalem, then it was binding. That's how ridiculous it had gotten. Just one word would change everything. Even though they would say everything the same, they would make an oath, they would swear. And Jesus comes along and says, don't do that. Don't swear by Jerusalem or by heaven or by earth. Don't swear. Don't, don't make these commitments. Simply, when you say yes, mean yes. And when you say no, mean no. So that when you say those statements, people know exactly where you stand. There is no middle ground. You're in or you're out. And with that understanding this morning, what Jesus set up for you and I, I want to talk about our commitments. And the first thing I want to talk about is ways that you and I have a tendency to compromise our commitments in life. The decisions we make, the things that we say, the statements that we make, that what we're going to do and what we really end up doing and how we end up compromising those things. So the first thing of, of compromised commitments that we struggle with is that we have a tendency to say it, but not to mean it. Many times in our life when we make a commitment, we do what, what the Jews were doing. We're, we're swearing, we're making this big grandiose proclamation about what we're going to do, but deep down inside, we really don't mean it. We don't mean that we're really going to follow through because we really, on the inside, we know the truth of what's going on, but on the outside, we're trying to make it look like something else. We'll say it, but deep down inside, we really just don't mean it. Back in, in, in the early church, in fact, talk about sacrificial giving. Acts chapter 5. So they were so committed to Jesus' work in their life and the advance of what the God was doing through the church and commitment to each other, that people were going out and selling their land and giving all the money to the apostles so that the apostles could distribute the money to people who were in need. That's what's crazy when you read through the early church. It said they, were people, they had no need because everyone was sharing what they had. So people would go out and like, it's like today going out, selling your house, bringing all the money and dropping it here at the stage and saying, okay, who has need? That's crazy. It's amazing. They're so committed to following Jesus. But then there's a story in Acts chapter 5 that tells us how somebody used that to say it, but not to really mean it. So let me read the story. It's probably familiar to most of you. It says, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So they're doing just like everybody else. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. What he was doing is he was giving the appearance as though he was giving all of the money so he could look impressive. Because he was so generous. But then going on the story in verse 3, it says, Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before you sold it? And after you sold it, wasn't the money at your disposal? 
What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Now, if we read, it, read on, that, that story doesn't end too well for Ananias and Sapphira. They had a, had a come-to-Jesus meeting on the spot that they weren't anticipating. Why? Because they were trying to project something that wasn't true. All they had to do was come before the apostles and say, listen, here is a portion of the money that we made off the sale of our land. That's all they had to do. But he wanted to make this big, grandiose commitment. Hey, look at me. Look at what I've done. Here's the, all the money that we've, we've received from the sale of our land. And it wasn't true. See, in our lives, you and I have a tendency to do that. We'll overstate the case. Or we'll say things that aren't true. But we pretend that we mean it, but we really don't. We want people to think that we mean it. We try to convince them. That's why in our culture over time, what tends to happen is that you and I start to allow phrases to slip into our vocabulary because we want people to think that we mean it, but we really don't mean it at all. It's like when you run into a friend that you haven't seen for a while and it's a little bit awkward and and you're trying to wind down the conversation. You don't know how to get out of the conversation. So you say something like, hey, we should get together. Anybody ever said that? Like, we should do lunch, which you really don't mean at all. Right? Or the, the Christian version of that is, I'll pray for you. Anybody ever said that and not prayed? Raise your hand. We do. Why? Because we want people, we want to make the commitment, but we really don't mean it. We don't really, we don't want to be honest because we're afraid of what will happen if we're really honest. It even goes down to the level, you know, in marriage, when your wife comes in with a new outfit, guys, and she asks you that question that you dread hearing, does this make me look fat? What's your response? Most guys, oh, would never say that. I'll tell you, if Kim comes into me and she says, hey, I want you to tell me what this looks like. If I lie to her and she finds out that I lie, she'll kill me. She wants the truth. She want, that's why she's asking. But so many times we're so afraid. Oh, if I say this and, 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 and it is really, I'm really honest, people are going to reject me. See, we struggle. We compromise when we say it, but we really don't mean it. That's why Jesus is saying, Mean what you say. Yes or no. There's no middle ground, which leads to the second thing. We also compromise when we say it, but we just can't do it. Even with our best intentions, we say it, but, but we just don't have the ability to do it. But we don't want people to know that we don't have the ability to do it, so we say it, but we don't really do it. Peter's a good example of this. So Peter, in this encounter with Jesus, he makes this commitment to Jesus, which is a noble commitment, which is what? I won't deny you. Jesus tells him he will, but he says, no, I won't. Listen to, to Matthew 26, verses 20, or 34, 35. It says, I tell you the uh, truth, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night, talking to Peter, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all of the disciples said the same. What is Peter doing? In his best intentions, I'm making this commitment not to deny you, but in his humanity, he knew he wasn't capable of doing it. He couldn't. And then we know the way the story goes, and the Gospels tell us that when Peter finally for the third time denies Jesus, Jesus meets his eyes. They make eye contact. Can you imagine the Son of God making eye contact with you after you just disowned him three times? That's not a good day. But Peter's intent was, well, oh, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. What if, what if when Jesus said to Peter, listen, Peter, when you hear the rooster crow, you're going to have denied me three times. What if Peter's response was this? You know what? You're probably right. But my desire is 
to not disown you, is to be faithful to you all the way through death. But I know myself and I know my struggles, so I know that I probably won't, so please give me the strength to do that. What if Peter responded that way? Responded in humility and understood the decision or the the declaration he was about to make was something that in his flesh he couldn't do. And how many times in our life do you and I struggle with that? Where we we want to be committed. We say we are committed. But deep down inside, no matter how hard we try, we can't stay committed. Because maybe we've committed to something that we couldn't do or we shouldn't do. Or maybe we should think more about, which we'll talk more about in a moment. But I remember years ago, we did a thing called Men's Fraternity at our church up in Newburgh. And it was, we pushed really hard. We wanted guys to be a part of it. And it was a big commitment. It was 24 weeks, once a week, at 6 a.m. every Thursday morning. And so we, we got guys to say, hey, I'm going to make this commitment. I'm going to do this. And so the first Thursday morning we did it, 6 a.m., we had 75 guys show up. It was awesome. 75 guys committed, getting up, you know, some of them made arrangements with their work schedule. We had one guy, I'm not kidding you, he is just out of college and he was working in Portland, which is 25 miles away. He rode his bike to Newburgh in Oregon in the winter. It's crazy. Hardcore commitment. So we were, all the leaders were thinking, hey, this is really good. I mean, we got 75 guys. We're all excited and everything. And then week two came. And we had like 65 guys. We're like, hey, that's okay. You know, 10 guys, they'll come and go. They'll be here, though, for the most part. And then the third week, we had like 50 guys. We're like, well, you know, it's, we're going to have attrition. That just happens, you know. And then the fourth week, it's like 45 guys. By the time we got to the end of the 24 weeks, there was about 25 to 30 guys left. Less than half. Why is that? Because life happened. A commitment was made, hey, I'll be all 24 weeks. We're in. We're gonna, I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. And of course, the wives are ones that were setting the alarm and kicking their husbands out of bed in the morning. But something somewhere along the line in the scope of life, they didn't have the ability to stay with their commitment. Were they passionate and zealous and genuine in their desire? Absolutely. But they weren't able to follow through. It was beyond what they could do in their own, the own rhythm of their life. And sometimes you and I get to those places where if we don't rely on God's strength in our life, we can't keep our commitments. We can't be faithful. But we'll say it and sometimes we end up not being able to do it. Then the third way that we compromise is that we say it, but ultimately we manipulate it. See, we say something, but we find a way to say it in just the right way so that we can get out of it. What, just exactly what the Jews were doing. If I change one word, then I'm not bound by this. I have an out clause. And we have a tendency to do that too. We will say key phrases or say certain things that we know that there's a couple different ways to interpret them so that we can find our way out of it. I was doing some some research on on marriage and it was interesting. I don't know if it's still in existence, but uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have a, a, in their marriage ceremony, in their vows that are set, they have a phrase that is inserted in there and it's very easy to interpret in a certain way that gives anybody who gets married in their church an out. This is what's embedded in their vows. So you're making this commitment to a man or a woman and it says, as long, for as long as we both shall live together on earth. Anybody hear any little clause in there? What if you're no longer living together on earth because you've chosen not to? Are you no longer bound to your marriage commitment? See, you and I are like, wow, wow, that's a pretty smart way to do it. See, you and I do that all the time. We say certain phrases or certain things. Why? Because we're manipulating something to make it look like we're making the commitment, but we are not making a commitment. We just want people to think that we are. We want them to be impressed with our commitment. 
But deep down inside, we know we're just manipulating the situation. We're wanting to make ourselves look good. And when we live that out, then you and I begin to end up finding ourselves in the middle of the road. We're not on one side or the other. We are stuck in the middle, and being in the middle is the worst place. So how do you and I move forward? How do we make commitments that actually count in our life? When our yes is yes and our no is no. A few things I want to highlight. The first one is this. You and I make better commitments and we make commitments that count when we consider the how before the what. When we actually think through the commitment that we're making. So before saying yes or before saying no, we actually consider what is this going to mean? How is this going to work out if I say yes or if I say no? See, it's the same thing that Jesus talks about in our decision to follow him. We use the phrase, counting the cost. How is this going to work in my life? Jesus said this in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 to 30. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? But if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to. To finish. How true is that of us? Great intentions, but we never thought, how is this going to look? And then what happens in our life is you and I live in a perpetual state of being undone. We're never finished. We're never complete. We've never fulfilled the commitments that we've made. Here's perfect evidence. I'd estimate probably this is true of about 60% of us in the room right now. If we all hopped in our cars and we took a field trip to your house, And we got to your house, we opened your garage. What would we see? We would probably see, for many of us, you would see the story of your life covered in dust. Of all the things that were going to be the next greatest thing, the next big commitment in your life that you were going to tackle and you were going to do, and then life happened. The exercise machine that you paid too much for because the person on the infomercial somehow convinced you it would make you look hot or sexy, right? And then you forgot to read the little fine print that says a healthy diet has to accompany the exercise and never did that part. You see that or you see some hobby that you came up with and that was going to be all the things that you want to do and how fun it was going to be. And now it's just, you know, it's the bike that you were going to ride every day that's now hanging from the rafters in your in your garage. It's all these great intentions that are undone. Why? Because you never thought the next step of how is this commitment going to work? I know what it is, but how? How is this going to happen in my life? How is this going to to work? You see this, it's funny, you see this, if you drive around, if you ever go to Uganda, and this is true in a lot of other African countries, but in Uganda, because of poverty, you can't just go down to the local bank and borrow money. It's pretty much a lot of people who live in poverty in, in, in Uganda live with cash. It's money that they have on hand. So for them, they, they don't want to wait until they have all the money to build a house or a building. They want to start, and as they have money, they will build. So when you drive around, one of the things you'll see is say someone says, I want to build a four-story building. So, but I don't have enough money to complete it, but I have enough money for the first floor. So they will build the first floor and leave the top undone. And then when they get a little bit more more money, they may put in some structure on the top, but they still haven't finished it. So you will see people, families living in houses or buildings on the first floor that have the shell of another two or three floors that have nothing on it, but they're living in there, they have electricity. You would never see that in our country. You'd have to, what, all four stories have to be complete, all the permits have to be fulfilled, all the codes have to be made, all the finances have to be taken, then you can move in. But you drive around, there's a good side, is that you're never in debt, but there's a bad side. You're always living in an undone condition. 
Literally, all over the country, you could see it. It's always not quite there. Now, for you and I, is that, is that the story of our life when it comes to our commitments? That literally, the, the spiritual life that God is building in us because of our lack of commitment and ending up in the middle of the road is always in this condition of being undone? Because in my greatest intention, I made the commitment, but when it really came to the rubber meeting the road, I didn't know how it was going to work. Therefore, I wasn't able to keep the commitment that I've made. So many times that happens in our lives, which leads to the second thing. If we're making commitments that count, we need to consider the cost before the credit. Let me explain what I mean by that. So, in Jesus' day, you know, obviously Jesus is talking about, well, when we get to chapter 6, he's going to talk a lot about how the religious leaders would do lots of stuff in public to kind of make everybody go, wow, you're impressive. Wow, you're amazing. But privately, they, weren't, they were being completely dishonest with what they were doing. And the same thing is true for you and I, is that even in, in Jesus' day, they're making these big public commitments, but they're looking for the loopholes to get out. Because ultimately what they want is they want the credit for the commitment, but they don't want to pay the price for the commitment. And so many times in our lives, we want the credit for the commitment. We want what it's going to look like in our life, but we don't want to pay the price for it. I know he was here for service. I know John Looney's around, but John Looney and Mike Bauer finished the Portland Marathon this year. That's a pretty great accomplishment. Very, very big accomplishment. Yeah. You can... So, the coolest thing about the Portland Marathon is when you finish, you get a t-shirt. And on the t-shirt, it has, you know, Portland Marathon, it has the year, but the biggest writing on top of the shirt says, finisher. Because it means that you actually ran ran the 26.2 miles and crossed the finish line and you got the t-shirt. When, I, when we were up in Portland area, I remember after the marathon, you'd always see people around town wearing their t-shirts so proudly. In fact, I would watch people who would run in the same t-shirt every day and never wash it because it's like, I'm a finisher, I did it. And it's so exciting to see that because the commitment that they made six months prior, especially in Oregon, to run in the cold the rain, the snow, the ice, to be able to run 26.2 miles and actually finish earns them the t-shirt. You know what the crazy thing is? If you go on the internet and you go on to Portland Marathon website, you can buy the t-shirt. Isn't that sad? And people do. I want to be a finisher. I just don't want to work for it. I want to be really cool. I want the, the t-shirt. I want to run. I want people to look at me. But boy, I don't want to run for six months. I don't want to train. I don't want to have to eat right. I don't want to have to do any of that stuff. I just want to be, pretend to be a finisher. See, it may work with the marathon. It may work with a bogus t-shirt. But it never works in following Jesus. It doesn't. It never works because ultimately, if you and I are not willing to, to say, I am willing to pay the price for this commitment, you and I will never get credit for it. That's one of the things I say when we get a precursor to chapter 6. Jesus talks a lot about this is what they do in public, this is what you do in private. doesn't matter if people know what you're doing or not because what you do in secret is what matters to God. What we do publicly is what we think matters to everybody else. So you and I have to be willing to consider the cost before the credit. And then thirdly, we have to consider the future before the present. How many times you and I make a decision or a commitment in our lives that is based on the moment right now, and we don't think about tomorrow. We don't think about the future of saying yes or saying no in this moment. All we can think about is this right now. 
We don't think about it. We don't think about what it's going to mean a week down the line or two weeks or a month or six months. We just think about it right now. It's, it's when you're, you're making that purchase. You know, you got a really good salesman that, that comes, you go to an auto dealership and, and they're really good at sales, right? Right, Daryl? Good sales, that's right. And, and you walk on the lot and you think, oh, I don't need the top of the line car, but boy, the salesman works really good. And you think, well, you know, maybe I do deserve that car. You know, I've worked really hard and I need all the bells and whistles. And then you're sitting there in the office and the pressure's on and the financing and all that. And you think, oh, I can do this. I can do it. Just, oh, I just can't. I got to drive off the lot in that car. And you sign it. And then the next morning you wake up and you have buyer's remorse. Because then you start to realize, oh, no, I have a payment now that comes with that nice car. And now I'm obligated to that car. Because all you were doing is thinking about this right here. You weren't thinking about what was going to happen in the next moment or what it was going to look like a few weeks down the line. You and I have to consider what the future looks like. You have to look down the line a little bit. When I was between my sophomore and junior years, a lot of my friends uh, found a way to lighten their load during the school year. They, I was going to LA Baptist High School, but a lot of my friends said, hey, if you go to public school for free, you can start taking classes ahead of time and so you don't have to take them during the school year. So I thought, wow, what a great idea. So one of my friends said, yeah, I've taken like three courses that I don't have to take during the school year because I got credit for them in the summer. So I'm like, perfect. I had to take U.S. history my junior year, so I thought I'll take it in the summertime. So closest high school to me was Van Nuys High School, so I signed up, and I had these great expectations of getting it done, and I could take some easy softball class that I didn't have to work hard in during the year. And so I get there the first day in class, and I sit down, 40 students jam in this classroom. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is more than the class that I'm used to, bigger, but... I can do this. And so the teacher gets up and, and he starts to explain the whole process of the class. He said, this is a six-week course. He said, it's Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 12 p.m., four hours a day. He said, and we're going to work through all what you would cover in a semester. We're going to go all through all U.S. history. And I remember thinking, six weeks? This is between my sophomore and junior year. This is summertime. I'm supposed to be out hanging out. And on top of that, I hadn't got my driver's license yet. And my parents couldn't drive me there. So I had to walk. It's three miles each way. So I started thinking about this. And I came the second day and something dawned on me. Not only was this going to be difficult because it's going to take six weeks of my vacation. I'm going to have to work hard. I realized that only five out of the 40 students in the class were there because they were trying to get ahead. The other 35 were trying to catch up because they had flunked it the year before. You know what it's like to be in a class with 35 students that don't, really don't want to be there? It's not very fun. They don't listen. They don't respond to the teacher. They want to mess around with you. And I remember the second day, I thought to myself, I'm done. I'm not going to do this. And I remember walking home the three miles, and I'm thinking, I am not doing this. In fact, the next morning, I went back to Venice High School, and I said, I'm checking out. I'm done. Because the commitment was too great for me to make. Because that first day when I walked into the class, I had these great plans of, hey, six weeks and I'll be done. And when I get into the next year, I'm going to be fine not realizing what that was going to cost me two or three or four or five weeks down the line. How many times do you and I make decisions in life that do that to us? We haven't really considered the future and what the future looks like. Now, hear me before I go to the, the last point of what I want to talk about. You may be here and in, in, in your mind you're thinking, okay, so now what I'm understanding is I have the ability not to make a decision at all. I can say no to everything. Hey, at least I'm saying no. Not in the middle anywhere. 
See, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Because most of the time, a commitment has to be made. A decision has to be made. But it's how you follow through with that decision. And the tragedy of being able to say no and stick with no is that many times you needed to say yes, but what's worse than saying yes and meaning no? There isn't anything worse than that. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's better for you to just to be straight up and say no, but that doesn't mean somehow that you're justified in the future. Because you can say no to Jesus and it'll cost you your eternity. Yeah, you can be definitive in that, but what's worse is if you say yes to him, but you really meant no. Because you've given the appearance and you've lied to yourself about your commitment. See, you and I don't have strong declarations when we say no. It's like, I have made a vow and a commitment never to serve in children's ministry. I haven't heard anybody say that. What we do here is, I've made a commitment to serve kids. Therefore, I'm going to show up every Sunday. I'm going to invest in their lives. That's the commitment we make. We don't get all definitive on the no side. This has to do with Jesus really wanting us to make the decision in the positive, to follow him and to make right decisions in our life, which leads to the last thing. To make a decision or a commitment that counts, you and I need to consider the source of the commitment before we compromise or before you choose to compromise. Let me explain what that means. The last phrase that Jesus uses in this passage is really important because he's saying to them, listen, don't swear by Jerusalem, don't swear by heaven or by earth. Then he says, basically, if your yes can't be yes and your no can't be no, if there's compromise anywhere in there, He says, this comes from who? The evil one. Anything else comes from the evil one. Any point of middle ground comes from the evil one. That's the danger zone Jesus is talking about. See, the enemy wants us to be in the middle because he wants us to lie to ourselves and to God that we've made a commitment even though he knows that we haven't. Because that's the best place for him to have us. It's the worst place for us to be. Because the tendency for you and I is to make a decision or make a commitment, but then find a way to compromise. It's called a shortcut. And it's something that you and I are offered all the time. The enemy will offer shortcuts to our commitments and decisions in life. He did it to Jesus 2,000 years ago. Let me read to you from Matthew chapter 4. Remember, Jesus has been fasting and praying for 40 days. That's a long time. So the enemy comes to him and he He tempts him in three different areas. In the final area, this is what it says in Matthew 4, verse 8 through 10. He says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, you have to understand, we always think, Oh, the enemy doesn't really know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he knew why Jesus came. He knew that Jesus came to die. He knew that when he died, he would sacrifice for the sin of all mankind for all time. And that would be a death blow to the enemy in his work. So he thought, if I can offer him a shortcut. Jesus had made the commitment to come because he knew he came to die. He knew he came to rise from the dead. He knew he came to conquer sin and death. So the enemy comes along and says, listen, you've come. And I know why you came, because we know ultimately what Jesus' outcome for Jesus was. In Philippians chapter 2, what? That someday every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will have, he has all power, all authority, all all, over all kingdoms, over all the earth. But the way he got that was through his death and resurrection. So the enemy comes along and says, listen, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. In fact, you can have all that right now. All you have to do is bow down and worship me and I will give you everything you came for. 
Can you imagine how tempting that would be? You mean, I don't have to die. I don't have to suffer. I don't have to go through this. I can just take the shortcut and I can get what I came for anyway. Be aware, that's the way the enemy works. Because he wants us to to take the shortcut, to compromise on the commitment, because then when we take the shortcut, you know where you and I end up? We end up right back in the middle. We end up in the place that is where we don't want to be. But sticking to our commitments, when we make a commitment, we don't take the shortcut. Let me tell you, I don't think I've told you this story, but, but this will give you a whole new understanding and respect for my wife and how she puts up with me. So when Kim and I were dating, we've been dating for a year. And I had to know, is she the one? We had spent a year, you know, building a relationship and, and start, you start thinking about marriage. And I just thought, I have to hear definitively from God, is she the one I'm supposed to marry? So I sat down with her one day. I said, listen, I have to know. And so for me to know, I need some distance. So we need to break up for three weeks. Now she wasn't very happy with me when I said that. I said, but I, I've got to go. It's like, I've got to go to the mountain. I've got to hear God speak to me, right? So she's like, fine. Three weeks, go ahead. So over that weekend, I think it was like a Thursday or Friday, I got a block of time where I really sought the Lord. I was really praying, and God made it very clear to me that, yes, she is the one. And in a nice way, kind of said, you idiot, why are you waiting, kind of thing. That's the way God works with me sometimes. And so it was about three or four days. And the next, I think it was the next week, Monday or Tuesday, we had a class at, at school together in college. And so we sat next to each other. And so that's the first time that I'd seen her through like after three or four days. So I sit down next to her and I turn and I look at her. And I said, great news. I heard from God. And I think we're supposed to get married. And she looks at me and she said, that's nice. I said, well, can we get back together? She said, yeah. In three weeks. She said, you said three weeks. We're going to stick to three weeks. And we sat next to each other in most of our classes. And we crossed paths a lot. That was the worst three weeks of my life. But see, I wanted the easy way. It took me four days. You're giving me 18 or you're giving me 21. Excuse me. It it took only four. So she's like, you're not taking a shortcut. You made a decision that now affects me, and now you're going to make sure that you fulfill that decision and that commitment. And the last 25, 26 years since we've known each other, Kim and I, she's always held me to my commitments. That's what I love about my wife. So, (laughs) we got one. So, I'm telling you, there must have been more like women in first service who have had this experience because they're like, yeah, Kim, give it to him. Make him pay for that decision, right? But I say that because so many times you and I want to shortchange the process. We want to make a commitment, but then we want to go back on it. We want to make it easier on ourselves. And we end up somewhere in the middle. Let me close with this. As I mentioned earlier, the, the timing of this and the importance of this and where we are as a church is vital because what we're doing as we move forward is, is really coming to a place of not am I committed to new hope in its future. Uh, that's not my concern. My biggest concern for every person is, are we committed to Jesus in the future he has for us as a church and as his individuals? Am I committed to following him with my life? Because really, in a nutshell, that's what Jesus is getting at. Our yes being yes and our no being no. Are we going to be all in? Are we going to jump in with both feet? And the reason this is so important is, is let me read to you, let me close with this, and the worship team will join us for one last song is in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Jesus talks to a group of people. 
who made commitments but found themselves compromising. And listen to what he said to them. He said this to the church of Laodicea, and he says, I know your deeds and that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are, oh, this is the worst, worst title that you can have, lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. What was Jesus saying? He's saying to this church, listen, it's better for you to be cold than it is for you to be lukewarm. He'd prefer that you and I were hot and passionately following Jesus, but it's better to be one or the other than to be stuck in the middle. The worst place possible is to be lukewarm. Why? Because in being lukewarm, you and I not only lie to God, we lie to ourselves. And when we lie to ourselves, we begin to deceive ourselves into believing something that is not true of us. And the tragedy for for some, because what Scripture says, is that we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we really are following Jesus, but we really were somewhere in the middle because we're not all in. That's why Jesus gave the warning. He said, hey, some of you someday will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do miracles? Didn't we do all these things? Didn't we attend church? Didn't we give? Didn't we serve? Didn't we do all the stuff that Christians are supposed to do? And then what does Jesus say? Oh, depart from me. Why? Because I didn't do enough? No, because I never knew you. Because you never chose to be all in and follow me. You never gave yourself fully to me. You did the deeds, because that's what he said to the church of Laodicea. I know your deeds. I know the good stuff that you've done. But you're not hot or cold. You're lukewarm. You're in the middle. That's why Jesus says, listen, are you all in? Is all of your life belong to me and everything that you're about? Are you all in? Or am I just a religion or a faith of convenience? See, that's what he's calling us to. And in this day and age, when we find ourselves in our nation, where we're at right now, the church needs to be hot. It needs to be on fire. Not with emotion and craziness. It needs to be passionately following Jesus, willing to endure and sacrifice everything that comes our way so that we can follow Jesus. It's about us, but it's about the world around us. God's calling us to not be in the middle anymore. He's calling us to be yes or no in our decision to follow him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, once again, we embrace a passage of Scripture that's not easy, that's very challenging. Lord, I thank you that you were willing to make a statement that was probably controversial to those who heard it, and when you were making a definitive statement about yes or no. And Lord Jesus, I know that you come to us today, and in all of our commitments, you ask us the same question, is it yes or is it no? Are you in or are you out? And so, Lord, I I ask that today that we come once again to that decision moment for us. Lord, it doesn't matter. It's been in our lives maybe a few weeks, a few months, or even our entire lifetime that we have made a commitment to follow you. Lord, I, I know that today we need to come to that place and maybe even look at our own faith and our own walk with you and ask that question again, am I in or am I out? Have I really chosen to follow you? Lord, I know this is this, we don't do this, Lord, because we're, we're doing this on some guilt trip. But Lord Jesus, we're doing it because ultimately we know that when we make a commitment to follow you and we stick with that commitment with, in, with you, that in this life, even though it's not easy, it is fulfilling. And in the life to come, it is rewarding. 
And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage and the honesty about ourselves and our commitments. That ultimately, Lord, we would find ourselves being all in because that's the decision that you want for us. That we give all of our life to you, that we hold nothing back, that we surrender fully to you, not only in this season of our life as a church, but, Lord, in every season of our lives in following you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your challenge. Let us embrace it today in what you're doing in us. In your name, amen.